Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Teresa is going to read from the book of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 27. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Thank you, Teresa. We are in the second week of our new series entitled, Did Jesus Really Say That? And uh, as we read this morning from Luke chapter 14, the verses dealing with the topic of discipleship, but specifically um, Priorities in life as it relates to the call to follow Jesus. Uh, We read something that startles us, and I can assure you was startling uh, to those to whom Jesus spoke those words. Um, That if, if a person wanted to be his disciple, um, that literally uh, they had to hate their mother, their father, their wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life itself. Now, is that startling? I, I, I hope it startles you. And I hope for some of you, you've come across that in the scriptures and you're saying, did Jesus really say that? What did he mean by that? Uh, I mean, how could he say that on one hand, and the other hand say, well, you know, you need to hate your family, essentially, but I want you to love your enemies. No, no, wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense at all. And so we're going to look at that scripture in a little more detail today. And we're going to talk about that and see if we can't really grasp what Jesus is saying, not only to his audience in the scripture, but to us today. And so I want to start this uh, discussion um, of discipleship and priorities in discipleship uh, with a look at a word, uh, let's say ownership, ownership. Let's start with the word ownership. Um, I think it's really essential to where we're going to go and to really understanding uh, what Jesus is saying in this passage. So let's start with things that we own. Okay? Things that we own. Many of us own a house, don't we? We, we, we own a house. <laughs> Some of us would say our house owns us, but we own a house. Um, probably more of us 
could say, we own a car. Now, those are material possessions, maybe not that car, all right? Um, Material possessions. But then there's relational ownership. Um, Not that we would look at it in terms of we own our families or we own our children, but there's a sense of these are ours, I take responsibility for them. And in a sense, there's an ownership of of family, of children, spouse, friends, relationships. Uh, Then there's the question of the ownership of our our very lives. And so you're going to see a person here contemplating, you know, who owns me? My mortgage? My car payment? My kids? My spouse? My job? Who owns me? Do I own myself? Right? Can I sing with Frank Sinatra? At the end of my years, I did it my way. Right? That's the ultimate anthem of male self-ownership. Okay? And so there's the question, you know, who owns me? Now, in this conversation of ownership, I, I want to I bring another person into the discussion. Next picture. He is representing Jesus. Okay? We, we did the best we could to find a non-Aryan, blonde-haired, blue-eyes, fair-skinned Jesus, Okay? Because people portray Jesus and they see them like they see themselves. And in our culture, most of our portrayals of Jesus portray a Jesus that in terms of features really isn't correct as to how Jesus would have looked. So we tried to find one that may have looked like Jesus. And, and this is kind of a, well, it's the best we could do. But here's the question. When it comes to Jesus... There is an issue of ownership. There's an issue of ownership. You see, in our evangelical, Protestant uh, nomenclature, we describe our relationship with Jesus as, I invited Jesus into my heart and my life. Let's just start there. So if I invite Jesus into my heart and, and my life, it, 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 boy, it's not a big step then to begin to think, well, I invite Jesus into my heart and my life. I invite you here, Jesus, so I'm going to call the shots. And the reason I invite you into my heart in my life is so that my life can turn out to be everything that I want it to be, I hoped it would be, and Jesus, you are going to facilitate that. I'm so glad you answered my invitation to follow me. Ouch. Okay? When in reality, what we read in Scripture is Jesus is inviting us 
be a part of His life and to follow Him. That we become participants in the work of God, in the priorities of the kingdom of God, as we follow Jesus and we enter into His life and we are joined together in union with Christ. So do you see how even the words that we use to describe our conversion experience betray the truth and the reality of what Scripture is calling us to do and to be? Ownership. If the truth be known, and if we're really honest, we talk and relate to Jesus as if we own Him. And He's at our beck and call. And in order to do that, we have to domesticate Him. We have to create a 21st century suburban Jesus hybrid that fits with the priorities of our culture. One that is consistent with our values. And when we do that, we have a pseudo-Jesus. We have a false Jesus. As opposed to Jesus calling us and transforming our lives and our values so that they reflect those of the kingdom. And when we domesticate Jesus, it's like putting a bit in his mouth, putting a saddle on his back, and saying, Jesus, I'm going to ride you, and on your back, I will achieve the desires and goals for my life. Ouch. Now, do you own Jesus? Or does Jesus own you? Do you expect Jesus to adjust the priorities of his life around the priorities of your life? Or do we adjust the priorities of our life around the priorities that Jesus has in, in, in the priorities of his kingdom. I know this is uncomfortable. But it's a valid question. And, and our passage today really begs that question. It begs the answer. What, what is that answer going to be? Now, whether or not you own Jesus or Jesus own you, it really has to do with whether or not you are a dog or a cat. Okay? I want to talk to you about cat and dog theology. Here's what a dog says. A dog says, You pet me. You feed me. You shelter me. You love me. Therefore... You must be God. Sorry, cat lovers. 
This is what a cat says. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, therefore, I must be God. And any of us who have had dogs or cats understand, right, the force behind this illustration. Okay? Here is the question for us today. Here's the question that this passage asked us to answer. You ready? Here's the question. Are you willing to surrender to Jesus' radical claim on your life? Are you? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to concede in a wonderful, joyful way to Jesus' radical claim on your life? Let's look at our passage again today. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Jesus, did you really say that? That is shocking. And Jesus intended it to be. Now, is Jesus really saying that a person who wants to follow him, a person who, 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 who wants to surrender to the radical claim on their life and be his disciple, is he really saying that they're to hate their family? Now, there's a principle here. Whenever we read a passage in Scripture... That we say, huh, that, that's inconsistent with what I know or think about Jesus or, or what he's taught. Also, we have to look at the whole counsel of God's word. And we have to look at the passage in context. And so here the word hate is not hate in the sense of I hate you. It's a comparative word. It's used in the sense of comparison. What Jesus is saying is, your commitment to me, your priority as a disciple, as one who has surrendered to my radical claim on your life, has to be so great, has to be such a priority in your life, that by comparison, and especially in the context of Jesus' time and day. There, I mean, the allegiance to family, priority of family was everything. 
honoring mother and father, loving your, 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 your family. That was everything. What he's saying is, your commitment to me has to be greater than that, so much greater that, that comparatively speaking, it would seem as if you hate your own family. Not that you do. But the gap. The, the strength of your commitment, the reprioritizing your life has to be such that, that it, it, you put Him above everything else in such a way that it impacts your decisions, your choices, your priorities, how you choose to live life, what you choose to do with the things that you do own. Which, by the way, it's not a matter of ownership, it's a matter of stewardship. It all belongs to God. But by comparison, it would seem as if you hate those other things. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying here. And then he goes on to say something else equally radical. That you're to hate even your own life and and that you cannot be my disciple unless you do so. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross was a symbol of brutality, of a horrible death. What Jesus is saying is, you died a self in order to live for me. And every day is a little death. That's what discipleship requires. This is radical stuff. I mean, it, it, it goes against, it slaps the face of this conventional cultural customs and practices of his time. And you know what? It does in our time too. Doesn't it? I I like what Rick Warren says. Rick Warren says this. He's the author of The Purpose-Driven Church, The Purpose-Driven Life at Saddleback Church in Orange County, right? He started the church going door-to-door, knocking on people's doors, inviting them, asking them what kind of church they'd want to come to. And then, well, we have Saddleback Church today. This is what he says in The Purpose-Driven Life. He says, you were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. Do you hear that? It's a question of ownership, isn't it? You were made by God for God. And until you understand that, until we understand that, life won't make sense. Until we understand that that God created us in His image as opposed to our creating God in our image to serve us unless we understand that we were created by God for God, right? We were made by God for His purposes. To serve Him, life will never make sense. It just won't. 
It won't. God stakes his claim on every area of our life. Every area of our life. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Philippians 2.13. Paul writes, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill your good purpose. Is that what it says? Then why do we live that way? Why do we live as if it says that? For it's God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Speaking of Jesus, all right? This is who this is talking about. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see that? We belong to him. We've been created for, for his purpose. For the priorities of the kingdom. Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper says it this way. I love this. This is like one of my favorite quotes. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. And that includes your life and my life. Does that settle the question of ownership? Now, what does it look like to live a life in which we have a proper understanding of ownership. We have a proper understanding of our purpose. And as a result, we order our priorities accordingly. Okay? What are, what are some of the things that are necessary if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be his disciple? What does that discipleship look like? Discipleship demands first that we realign our priorities. We cannot successfully follow Jesus unless our priorities in life are aligned with the priorities of his kingdom. Okay? 
in Luke 9, verses 59 through 60, Jesus is having a conversation. He says to a man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I want you to follow me. And the, and the priority of your life is to proclaim life where true life is found and how that life is found in my kingdom. That's your priority now. Matthew 6, 19-20 Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth or vermin, right? destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, our priorities no longer are to store up earthly treasure. It's not about he who dies or she who dies with the most toys wins. Can I amass more and more ownership over things in my life. There's a radical shift. It's I'm going to store up things in heaven. Things that are eternal. Things that won't rust. Things that, 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 that moth and, 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 and other things won't eat and destroy. I'm going to align my life and I'm going to point my compass to true north. And my life is going to be about the priorities of Jesus and His kingdom. And everything I have and everything I do is to serve that. He owns it all. I'm a steward of it. I'm a steward of it to advance His purposes. His agenda. Not my own. And so God stakes His claim on every area of our life. Discipleship demands that we realign our priorities. But discipleship also calls us to count the cost. And Jesus goes on with this. In our, in our passage today, he gives the example of building a building or a king who goes to war and, and how in both instances they are to consider, we are to consider, do we have what it takes to finish? We don't want to start something we can't, we can't successfully conclude. And so discipleship calls us to count the cost. And this is where um, this is where there's a tension. When I am sharing Christ with somebody who maybe doesn't know him or wants to know about him, my tendency 
is I want to tell them about all the, the great things about following Jesus. And what I have a tendency to do is I, I kind of don't talk about some of the counting the cost things. And I say, well, they'll figure that out. You know, they'll, they'll find that out. But what happens? When they begin to follow Jesus and, and they follow him and they respond, think about all the great stuff, all the goodies. And then they have to make difficult choices or aligning their priorities means upsetting other people or not being understood or being marginalized or ostracized or, or rejected. Then they say, God, what are you doing to me, Jesus? I don't understand this. I, I, this isn't what I signed up for. Yes, it is. That's what he's saying in our passage today. Yeah, this is what you're signing up for. You'd be my disciple, you have to count the cost. Now you can do a cost-benefit analysis, and, and let me tell you, the benefits far outweigh the cost. They do. It's all worth it. But Jesus calls any person that follows him and says, Hey, listen, you need to count the cost. That's part of what our passage is today. So let's look here. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this. When we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ. In union with his death, we give over our lives to death. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? Thus it begins, Bonhoeffer continues, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, or a woman. He bids them come and die. That's what Jesus was saying in our passage today in Luke 14. It's an invitation to die to self, to die to our own priorities, to die to the things of the world in the greater sense of living for a greater life, a life in the kingdom. In Philippians 1.29, Paul, reflecting on the price, says this, the cost. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ. It's a privilege to follow Jesus. It's a privilege of trusting and entrusting our lives to Him. But also the privilege of suffering for Him, of being uncomfortable for Him, of making difficult choices that are painful and hurt and are unpopular for Him. 
that when I get to the place where I say, okay, this is really about, do I own Jesus or does Jesus own me? I'm willing to surrender to the radical claim, his radical claim on my life. And to live for him, to sell out to him as best I understand and know and as life presents the opportunity to me. Okay? Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. I love the way Paul frames this. He says, but whatever... Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider the garbage that I may gain Christ. You see, he had it all. He had accomplished it all. He had status. He was prominent. He was educated. Uh, he, he, in terms of the practice of religion, he was righteous, as, as righteousness is according to the law. He had the right family pedigree. But what he's saying is, you know what, all of that by comparison to what I found in Christ, it's like garbage. Now, was it garbage? No. But by comparison, it might as well be. That's what he's saying here. And, and again and again and again, you and I are faced with choices. Choices of are we going to yield to the kingdom of man or are we going to yield to the kingdom of God? And, and, and it's like we have one foot in the boat and one foot in the dock and, and, it, and it's moving and we have to decide where we're going to step and have both feet. And what Paul is saying here is, hey, step fully in to Jesus' boat. Whatever you have, whatever you're holding on to, whatever your priorities are that are so important to you, that are worldly, believe me, Paul says, they pale by comparison. They're garbage in comparison to surrendering to the radical call of Jesus on your life. That's what he's saying. The third thing discipleship requires our dedication and focus. Christ calls us to single-mindedness. Now, I'm going to confess to you, there are times I live a double-minded life. Yes, your pastor is double-minded. There are times that I am. And the Spirit of God that lives in me doesn't condemn me for it, but convicts me, corrects me, so that I align myself fully with the values of his kingdom. What requires is I stay focused. 
And, and I have to deliberately remove some things from my life that are distractions. Things that maybe they're not bad in and of themselves. But they distract me. Or, or they draw my attention and my time away from things that really matter. What can matter more than leading a child to Christ? And yet, you know, and it's not just this church, it's every church. Pastors and children's leaders have to get up and, and make a compelling call to get people to want to be a part of leading kids to Christ. Now, why is that? Because there are other things that vie for our attention. There are other things that, that vie for our focus. But the call to discipleship, surrendering to the radical claim of Christ in our lives, requires our dedication and our focus. It means giving up that which is good for that which is great. God doesn't want to rob you of anything. He wants to fill your vault, your life, your heart full of His riches. Believe me. Wow. Luke 9, 6, uh, 62. Jesus says, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus, I'll follow you. Okay, Jesus, I'm... Okay, Jesus, I'm following you. Right? That's how I live my life sometimes. How about you? How about you? And finally... Hebrews 12.2. I love this passage. I get so excited about it. The author of Hebrews writes this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, the joy of fulfilling the purpose that God, his heavenly father, called him to, the purpose, Right? that resulted in our redemption. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That word scorning, is, it, 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 has a, it, it has a connotation of mocking its shame. It's like, yeah, yeah. Yes. Mm. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus says, I have gone to prepare a place for you that where you are, or that where I am, you will be also. Right? And, and any discomfort, any pain, any suffering, any hardship involved with, with responding to the radical claim of Jesus in our life. Man, it, it, it pales by comparison to what we're going to hear someday. 
when we hear those words, well done, well done, well done. my good and faithful servant. I want to surrender. I want to acknowledge true ownership of my life to the one who created me, to the one who died for me, to the one who invites me to live a new life as a new creation. And I want to realign my priorities. I want to make my father proud. Not because I have to, because I want to. As a response to his radical love for me. It was a couple of weeks before I was graduating um, uh, with my doctorate, my, my doctor of ministry degree. And we were in Los Angeles visiting Lori's family. But I took an occasion, I, I had an invitation to the commencement ceremony. And I went to the place where my mother is buried. I lost my mother at a young age. And she had such hope and aspirations for me. She sacrificed everything for me. Of course, when you're a teenager, you're selfish. You, you, you think it's all about you. <laughs> and I really didn't fully realize all that she did and all that she had hoped and dreamed as a single mother. But I get it as an adult, and, and it was important to me that I go, and, and I took an invitation to my commencement ceremony. And I set it on her headstone. I said, here, Mom. I did this for you. I love you. And when it's all said and done, I want it to be the same way for God, my Heavenly Father. Here, God, here, Jesus, here. I did this for you. I love you. So worship team comes forward. Let's continue and let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your claim on every area of our life. And we thank you for your son, Jesus. Who invites us into his life that we might have new life, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life that at the end of our days, 
we could say, we fought the good fight. We finished the course. We kept the faith. Here, Lord, this was for you. I love you. And then to hear those words, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, we need to be reminded of that with the stress and the strain and the pulls and the all the things that compete for our allegiance and the ownership of our lives, we need to be reminded of what we're really living for. And that's you. Would you help us today to realign our lives? Would you help us today to to rededicate ourselves to that to which you've called us? We can't do it on our own. It's a work of your spirit in our lives. And so we surrender fresh and in a new way. Time is short, and we want to be about your business. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.